We're continuing in this series. We started this a couple weeks ago. We're going to be working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and the plan is one message per chapter addressing Mark's biblical answers to puzzling questions. Today, what do we do when someone disagrees with us? I confess I had a hard time preparing for this message. There's so much in this chapter, and I ended up outlining the entire chapter. And I thought, well, maybe we'll go ahead and do four messages in a row, but no, we we changed and went back with our original plan. So we're just going to go ahead and look at this first section this morning. But as we said at the beginning of this series, the Gospel of Mark was written somewhere between 57 and 63 A.D., And the chief audience of this gospel were the Romans, and this book depicts Jesus Christ as the perfect servant. It is the shortest of the gospels, made up of just 16 chapters or 678 verses, and it's an action-packed book. We said Mark gives us highlights throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 3, it's no difference. We have five different topics. The first six verses deal with Jesus healing the withered hand. Verses 7 through 12 deal with Christ followed by the multitude. 13 through 21, Christ chooses his apostles. Verses 22 through 30, Christ refutes his work is in the power of Beelzebub. It's when he touches on the subject of the unpardonable sin. And then verses 31 through 35, Christ identifies his family as all who would follow him. Now this chapter begins with opposition and concludes with unity. It had become a common occurrence during the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to be confronted by Jewish religionists following his performing a miracle, and this recorded event is no exception. Each of Christ's responses recorded in this chapter reveal his compassion for the people and his disregard for the Pharisees' false religion. Just touching them on them briefly, first 12 verses, his response to those in need, he cared for them. Verses 13 through 21, his response to those who join him, he challenged them. Verses 22 through 30, his response to those who oppose him, he corrected them. And verses 31 through 35, his response to those who follow him, he comforted them. One would ask, are we as Christians expected to respond in every situation in the same manner, or do we have the liberty in the Lord to adjust our response based upon the circumstances that we find ourselves in? This morning, I'd like us to look at Jesus' conduct in this first situation here, these first 12 verses, and note how he responded to this opposition that he faced. We're going to see three things in regard to his demonstration of compassion. So start with me, if you would, in verse 1, and notice how he demonstrated compassion toward those who wanted to be helped. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. Whether this man was born with this deformity... He was involved involved in an accident that brought about an injury so that he couldn't use his hand, or he, he contracted some disease that made his hand unusable. We really don't know, and quite honestly, it, it's irrelevant to this situation. 
That's just one of those questions that comes up. Well, we don't know why. What really is important here is the fact that this man who had a need came to the Lord Jesus Christ to be healed. Remember, our theme for this year is Christ is the answer. He is the answer to everyone's question and is the supplier of everyone's need if they would only come to him. Now notice in verse 3, Jesus saith unto the man which hath the withered hand, stand forth. That phrase, stand forth, it refers to arousing a person from sleep or awakening from a state of moral sloth. This depicts the condition of everyone born into the world. Everyone, man, woman, boy, or girl, has a need, and that need can only be met through Jesus Christ. We need to wake up from our spiritual slumber. We need to recognize He is the only remedy for our soul's salvation. He's the great physician. He is the healer, not only of one's body, but of one's soul. Notice with me, if you would, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, a very familiar passage of scripture but notice what is said here john 3 14 and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We as Christians understand the importance of this passage of scripture. It is stating Jesus is the answer for everyone's spiritual need. Notice down in verse 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life and he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abideth on him somebody doesn't go to hell because they're a bad person or they do bad things they don't go to hell because they don't attend a certain church they don't go to hell because they don't follow a prescribed list of do's and don'ts People end up going into a Christless eternity because they refuse to recognize they're a sinner in need of a Savior and receive the gift of eternal life from He who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Notice John chapter 5, verse 24. Scripture saith, and this is Jesus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth in him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life that promise demonstrates a present tense salvation not a hope so think so wish so or maybe so salvation it's not a matter of waiting till we get to heaven to find out if our good works outweigh our bad works and we are thus ushered into the streets of glory no no it's a matter of in this life whether we like the repentant sinner cry out and say god be merciful to me a sinner yes jesus christ is the answer and by the way as we see In this passage of scripture and further on, Christ calls everyone to rise up and stand, to repent, to confess their faith in his power, to save their soul. 
John chapter 6, verse 40, And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Yes, God's promise is that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation is not limited to a certain group of people, a certain class or culture or nationality or language or socioeconomic status. Salvation is offered freely to anyone and everyone who would come to him. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, if salvation was only available to a certain few, Jesus wouldn't have invited everyone to come to him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe Jesus Christ died for the sin of the whole world. Everyone born into this world can receive the gift of salvation. How do we know that? Again and again, we see it declared in Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.4 Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Yes, God's desire is that people everywhere would come unto him. Just as the illustration in our text here, this man came forward recognizing he had a need. He knew he couldn't do anything about it himself. He knew there was one who could help him and heal him. And he turned to the one and only one who had the answer for his need. Beloved, that is the message the world needs to hear today. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That is the name of the lovely Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for the sins of the world. Again, he is the answer for everyone's need. A man named Bob Pierce is credited with saying, Let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. How we need to care about those in need. And yes, we ought to be concerned about people's physical need, physical suffering, hunger, shelter, clothing. All those things are important. But beloved, the greatest need of mankind today is their soul's redemption, that they would turn to Christ before it's eternally too late. You see, the demonstration of his kindness and compassion continued as the location of his work moved outside the city to the countryside. And his ministry expanded to include literally tens of thousands of people as seen in verses 7 through 10. We're not going to take time to go through that, but we would simply say Jesus demonstrated compassion toward everyone that came to him It's an amazing thing. In all the events where people came to the Lord, you didn't see him sort out people based on nationality or based on where they were from. He didn't sort out people based on their ability to pay for a miracle. He didn't sort out people based upon their age or their sex. No, no. Everybody came to the Lord. Like the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, make them sit down. And everyone sat down in companies of 50s or 100. He didn't say, men over here, women over here, kids back there, wealthy here, poor here, Jews up front, everybody else in back. No, no. 
as they came, he cared. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior we serve. And there is no room for prejudice or bias in the house of God toward those whom we come into contact with. Following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to demonstrate compassion to anyone the Lord brings in our path. Someone has said there's no end to the work of making Christ known to mankind. Here was a man who recognized his need and Jesus demonstrated compassion to this one who truly wanted to be helped. But notice, there was a group there who didn't want to be helped. Verses 5 and 6. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, this is the religionist, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Time and again, the religionists of the day attacked Jesus accusing him of teaching a false religion. In this confrontation, Jesus took the man with the withered hand and demonstrated just what true compassion is. The demonstration was so clear and so forceful that the religionists were enraged. Why? It's obvious to them and everyone else present that Jesus was making an example of them And with this single act of kindness, Jesus defied both their hypocrisy and their authority. It's quite possible that some in this group were a part of the same delegation that we looked at in Mark chapter 2 earlier when the Sanhedrin sent a group to investigate Jesus. Remember verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? You see, it was their duty to protect the people from false teachers and the nation from insurrectionists. This is important to note. How do we know they didn't want help? They weren't there at the synagogue to worship. The synagogue was the house of worship for the Jews. The Jews gathered in the synagogue. That's where the scripture was read. That's where it was expounded. That's where people met for the purpose of worshiping God. Notice they were not there to worship. They were there to criticize. Verse 2, they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. It's interesting. Being compassionate doesn't demand we be weak and compromise. Compassion is based upon genuine love, which not only loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Christ was burdened for that man who needed help, but on the same hand appalled by those who would reject this man and offer of aid, assistance, or compassion. And for them, a second dose of humiliation was unappreciated. They responded accordingly. Why? Because unlike Christ, their religion was compassionless. Now, wait a minute. These were Jewish leaders representing Pharisees, Sadducees, representing Herodians, those who were committed to following the Lord. How can we make the claim they were compassionless? 
combination of adhering to the tradition of the elders and forsaking the law of God blinded these men to the truth. They rejected the truth of God's word and it prevented them from seeing Jesus was the Christ. The tradition of elders, those were practices put into place by Jewish religious leaders that people were expected to adhere to. And during the time of Christ, the tradition of the elders had gained so much in popularity and influence that they superseded the word of God. May I say this, any teaching of man that is elevated above the teaching of the word of God is heresy. It doesn't matter if it comes from people who say they love God or not. Nothing is more important in its authority and weight than the word of God. The Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Man's writings don't even come close to holding the truth and merit of the word of God. Well, these traditions of the elders, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 15, when the Pharisees came to him and saying, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. It had become a rule. You had to wash your hands before you eat. Now that's a good hygienic practice, but it's not going to make a difference whether or not you go to a heaven or a Christless eternity, but to them it mattered. So Jesus answered them with this. Notice, question with a question. Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God hath commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother. And he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus put these men in their place in that setting, and he did it over and over and over again. These men hated him for that. But we see this is emphasized throughout Scripture, not just in the ministry of Christ, but as well the ministry of the apostles. Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Just because somebody says they follow God doesn't mean they are. Scripture teaches us, by their fruit ye shall know them. You see, if somebody produces the fruit of righteousness, then they are conducting righteous acts. If somebody produces fruit that is wicked, it is because their actions, activities, and heart is wicked. 1 John 3.18, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Our speech ought to match our actions and activities. We ought to be walking and talking in the same direction. (laughs) Well, the problem with this situation wasn't Christ's lack of compassion toward these men. 
I believe had they repented, he would, have, he would have received them just as he did everyone else. We know that was true of Nicodemus as well as other religious leaders of the time. But the problem was these religionists lack compassion and we see it here in verses 5 and 6 in what we just read. Again, Jesus looked on them with anger being grieved for the hardness of their heart. The hardness of heart is referring to one who is lacking compassion. Someone who is choosing not to demonstrate care toward others. How do we know that? Again, verse 6, And the Pharisees went forth straightway and took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Let me ask you this. If they really cared about this man being healed and their only issue was that it took place on the Sabbath and they didn't like the idea of Jesus performing other miracles on the Sabbath why didn't they talk to him why didn't they say you know we believe you're wrong would you just limit performing your miracles to Sunday through Friday would you not perform these miracles on the Sabbath Now, granted, had that happened, he would have had an opportunity to explain to them he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, they didn't do that. They weren't concerned about this man being healed any other day of the week. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was doing it and he was getting the attention and people were turning to him and turning away from the teachings of the Jewish elders. This is what demonstrates their compassionless attitude. This is what demonstrates they did not want help of the Lord. They were there to find fault. They were there to trip him up. They were there to bring accusation against him. And as soon as this event ended, out they went to gather together a gang so they could bring an end to this one's ministry. You know, Jesus faced opposition all throughout his ministry from these religionists who knew not the word of God. And as a result rejected him as their Messiah. Puritan preacher and writer John Bunyan said, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. These men, well, they had the teaching down. They knew the word of God. They knew the tradition of the elders. They had all the words they needed to put people under their thumb, but they lacked a heart of compassion. Once again, Jesus demonstrated to others what it means to truly care. Then if you would look with me down at verses 11 and 12. I only mention this because it seems to cause confusion for some folks. You see, Jesus was willing to help those who wanted help. There were those present who didn't want help. And there were also those present who couldn't be helped. Verses 11 and 12 are in connection with or in the context with the activities of the Lord moving out to the countryside and the multitudes who appeared before the Lord. People traveled for more than 100 miles to see Jesus. There were literally tens of thousands of people to whom he ministered. But notice, among that group was another crowd that got the attention of our Lord. Verse 11, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And notice, he instantly charged them that they should not make him known. 
Jesus commanded these people to be silent rather than identify him as the Lord of glory. A lot of people ask why. See, this would have been a great testimony for the Lord, you think. I mean, to have even demons acknowledge this was the Christ. You see, Jesus came to the world to do the will of him that sent him. And he didn't need the endorsement of the underworld. Satan's chief goal is to deceive, to dethrone, and to destroy. He walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Isaiah 14 gives us the five I wills of Satan and how he would sit in the seat of God, how he would take the place of God. Well, we know that didn't happen, for he and one-third of the angelic host were cast out of heaven as they rebelled against God. God cannot be defeated or overthrown. No matter how powerful Satan is, we are more than conquerors through Christ, for he is greater than everything in this universe. Well, here we have this crowd now who comes to acknowledge Jesus is the Christ. And he said, be quiet. I don't need your endorsement. I don't want you to stand by my side. He said, I want you to be quiet. And by the way, he did that over and over and over in his ministry. Again, Jesus came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And that was God's plan, not Satan's. Ephesians 4.27 says, Neither give place to the devil. He didn't need the devil's help in preaching the gospel. He didn't need the demon's approval in reaching the masses. No, not at all. That's why the scripture warns us or admonishes us in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Book of John, Jesus declared that Satan is a liar, he's a deceiver, he's the father of lies, and we ought not to be willing to have him yoke up with us or agree with us just because we think it'll lend credibility to our position. I believe this is a mistake many, many professing Christians and so-called Christian organizations are involved in today. You see, they want to give the devil a voice in the matter. I believe they're seeking the approval of the devil's crowd so their message would be more acceptable to the world. Understand, the world is an enemy of Christ, the cross, and Christianity. All you have to do is listen to the headlines being broadcast on our news stations today and recognize this world is not a friend of God. This world is not a friend of standing up for God and doing that which is right. But you have so-called preachers and Christians and churches who are welcoming in worldly activities and philosophies and practices for the hope of drawing a crowd. Listen, it doesn't matter how much alcohol, tobacco, drugs, tattoos, piercings, brandings, music, or homosexuality we throw out there and say, come on in, you're all welcome. Listen, everybody is welcome at foot of the cross. But beloved, we come to God on his terms, not our own. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6. And while you're turning, I remind you the book of James tells us, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're not to be yoken up with him. We're not to have him side by side enabling us to be more effective before the world. Not so. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. Well, modern day Christianity's got it backwards. Rather than coming out from them and being separate, They're saying, let's just go ahead and throw our arms around each other and and join in and all work together. It doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are. It doesn't matter what moral standards you hold to. It doesn't matter what philosophy you deem most important. Oh, let's just go ahead and work in this thing together. After all, we believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Beloved, that's an error. Oh, it really is. You see, people are born into this world in sin, and their only hope of being freed or delivered from sin is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And encouraging them to participate more in sin isn't going to give them a reason to turn from idols and turn unto the true and living God. People need to see there is a difference between Christianity and the world. But you go into many so-called church houses today, there's no difference in the church and the world when it comes to their music, when it comes to their activities, when it comes to their morals, when it comes to their participation with the world. Jesus warned, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 21, Paul writes, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. There's a choice to be made. Choose Christ or choose the world. Joshua made it clear before the children of Israel succeeded in their conquest of the land. He said, you choose this day whom you will follow, whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Elijah said, you can choose to follow the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves, but I choose to follow God. David chose to follow the Lord. We see over and over and over again in Scripture God has blessed those who turned their back on the world and chose to follow the Savior. Ephesians 5, 8, For ye, we who are saved, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There we are admonished not to follow the ways of the world, but to follow Christ. Yes, we see Jesus address those who 
stood before him and wanted help, those who didn't want help, and those who couldn't be helped. And he responded differently in each situation. Yes, we are to respond with compassion. The scripture says, and of some having compassion, making a difference. But beloved, we are also expected by the God of heaven to stand firmly on the word of God and not let someone push us from our position in Christ. And yes, unfortunately, there are those out there who choose to follow Satan. What they do is their business. We have a responsibility because we are accountable to God. We are responsible to live for him. Do you care for others? doesn't matter what people out there say. doesn't matter what people out there do. Do you care for others? I'll close with this simple illustration. A student one day asked anthropologist Margaret Mead for the earliest sign of civilization in a given culture. He expected the answer to be a clay pot, a fish hook, or a grinding stone, or something of that nature. He was surprised by her answer, because in response to his question, she said, a healed femur. She explained, no mended bones are found where the law of the jungle and survival of the fittest reigns. A healed femur shows someone cared. Someone had to do for that injured person in helping with their hunting and gathering and caring for them until their leg was healed. She said the evidence of compassion is the first sign of civilization. Isn't it interesting? Someone who doesn't know the Lord recognizes the value and importance of compassion and caring for others.